Good evening. Don't pull those doors shut. Be turning to the book of Nehemiah. This is echoing a little bit. To the book of Nehemiah. Glad to see all of you here this evening. We'll get started here in just a second. On Sunday, we talked about Nehemiah and Ezra and how that they are in many ways sort of one book that has since been split into two. And Nehemiah and Ezra are two different people who had two different jobs. Ezra is probably what we would call a preacher. Nehemiah, if we wanted to use the term that we would maybe use in the church today, more like a deacon, I guess. He's kind of, he's sort of a person that did the work. It's important to note, though, what Nehemiah wasn't, and we'll address this a little bit later on, but Nehemiah was not a prophet. And sometimes that term gets used, but that's not really what Nehemiah was. And we'll see that here as we go in just a little. Let's remember last week. Uh, Sunday, what we had talked about. After the children of Israel had been exiled out of their land, they had been sent off into Babylonian exile, Babylonian captivity, whatever term works for you, they had spent somewhere between 50 and 60 years away from Jerusalem. So they were gone for an extended period of time. But then the king, uh, uh, the, the, the king Cyrus, uh, affords them an opportunity to go back to their homeland, which was uh, a, a touch of good luck, as it were. And when they came, they, they rebuilt the temple, and that's one of the things that Nehemiah plays a significant role in. But they also had to get back into their sort of way of worship. And that's one of the areas that they struggled with because even after they came back, they were still falling into the old traps, the things that they had gotten in trouble for previously. One of the things that we talked about with Ezra on Sunday was how that they had married people of different tribes. And when they married those people of different tribes, they adopted their gods or they left behind the God of Israel. And so you had all of these people that seemingly were the children of Israel, but they were worshiping other gods. When they came back, they fell right back into that same thing as well. And that's when Ezra speaks to the people and says, this is, you know, th- th- this cannot be the case. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about Ezra, you know, pulling his beard out of and, and just sitting for hours seemingly astonished at what had happened. And so that's going to set the stage maybe for where we are. But let's look at this. You've got this on your papers uh, as well. But Nehemiah is the 16th book of the Old Testament. It covers about a 20-year time period. A couple of different things. It is written in the first person. Nehemiah will be the talker here. A couple of things, and we will address, we sort of already addressed this one. Uh, in Ezra, but Nehemiah gets, it says it gets tough with the men who had married foreign wives, especially the priests. And there's some overlap between Ezra and Nehemiah's stories here. 
And then also Nehemiah gets Israel's leaders to stop charging tax to the returnees of the exile. And then uh, this verse, uh, it's pretty good here. Uh, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And that's one of Nehemiah's tasks is going to be to rebuild this bridge. Okay, as we see here, many feel this is a sequel to Ezra. A sequel is something that comes after uh, the fact. Uh, so a sequel would be, you know, second. Uh, Nehemiah here, we use, they use the word a layman. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. Uh, he served the king of Persia and then leads the group of Jews to Jerusalem with the task to rebuild and to fortify the city walls. And that's what we're going to look at uh, here this evening. So let's start with, yes. I, I think it's important that you may bring this up safe, but we talked about this Sunday morning. This is the, at the end of this book, you might as well put a period on the Old Testament. It's finished. Yes. The historical record of the Old Testament is finished until Jesus comes on the scene. Right. Like, uh, that's a, I don't, I doubt very many people know that. Yeah, and that's I doubt, true. You know, because there's lots of other, you know, 16 or 23 more books later. Right. But it's, I do want to say this. Finding artistic renditions of things that dealt with Nehemiah was not easy. You're going to get about six pictures tonight. They're all seemingly the same picture doing something different, you know? He's got a different shirt on in this one, but he's kind of doing the same thing. So don't expect to be wowed by the photos uh, that you're going to see here, uh, see here tonight uh, with that. But let's go over this here to start with just a little bit of biography. Who is Nehemiah? Well, first of all, as we saw there just a second ago, he had served as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Uh, in the second chapter uh, of the book, uh, you can read that he receives permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, all this has been de destroyed sort of over time. And so his responsibility, or he gets permission to rebuild these walls. <clears throat> he runs into some opposition uh, along the way in, in the second chapter. Uh, they're attacked by enemies in the fourth chapter as they build this. Remember, this is not, you know, again, we have this notion of the Holy Land being exactly that. And there was nobody else there. You know, there's just free reign to do whatever. And that's not the case at all. There were other people that had made claims to this as well. In chapter 5, he's appointed governor, uh, even though some had wanted to kill him. <clears throat> and then once the walls of the city were completed, the Jews then start to return from their foreign lands. So that kind of builds us up. Our focus tonight is going to be in chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, you can. Now, before we do that, I thought we'd look at this for just a moment. One of the things that's different about Jewish people even today than everyone, I guess, else, is they, they use a different calendar. Now, if you have a next-door neighbor that's Jewish, it's going to be June the 9th at their house, the same as it is yours. But the Jewish calendar that existed was when these holidays were set in place. The calendar that we use uh, is a Christian calendar. It's a Gregorian calendar, I think, is what we use uh, now after uh, a few different changes. But I want to address just a couple of things. This is not for anything other than just to show you what was going on 
uh, at about the time period that our story is going to start. First of all, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar is the so-called festival month. All right, And you may not be able to see these numbers and these letters, but this says May, June, July, August. But around the edge here are numbers. Okay, So you see... In the white circle, one, two, three, four, five, six, works it all the way around to seven. And so a Jewish calendar doesn't match perfectly with the calendar that we would use today. The seventh month right here is considered the festival month. The first day of the month was called the Feast of Trumpets. If you have a calendar at home, or maybe even a calendar on your phone, it'll say Rosh Hashanah, all right? That sort of starts, that's the Jewish New Year, which seems odd that it's the seventh month, but, you know, I didn't make the calendar, so I don't have any explanation for it. Also in that seventh month is the so-called Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish term is Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, and it is a celebration of the time in the desert. And so when they were wandering, it is a reminder to the Jewish people of the time that they were spent wandering in the desert. Okay, You also have the Day of Atonement. Your calendar would call this Yom Kippur uh, if you were to see it uh, there today. These all occur in the seventh month. All right, These are seventh month uh, type things. Now, <clears throat> when these people come together in our story tonight, that's where... We kind of are on the calendar, all right? So I just wanted you to see this and uh, kind of see where each of these are. So I told you to turn to first, or excuse me, to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we are going to read verses 1 through 8. I thought long and hard about asking Lucille to read this. All sorts of just easy names, Bobs and Tims and Johns, just simple names. But I thought this is too easy for Lucille. She doesn't need to, she's so good at reading those names we don't need to. So I texted Boo earlier today and I said, be ready to read the first eight verses. You're who I trust to be able to handle this. So these names, it's, it's all good until about verse four. And then we would have just spiraled out of control after that. Now, I do want to say this. <laughs> She's already thinking about going to the bathroom. Reading time. Go to the we are going to read verses one through eight right now. But those verses will reappear because we're going to go back in and address five of those verses. So you'll see them on the screen. So we'll see them in the reading right now, not on the screen. And then we'll get them up on the screen again here in just a moment. So, Boo, if you don't mind. Technically, Boo, go right above chapter 8, that very end where it says when the seventh month came. Do you see what I'm saying? At the end of verse 73. Zachariah and Meshulam, 
And it, Ezra opened the book in front of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Joshua, and Bonnie, and Sherebiah, Jamin, Achel, Shabbatai, Azariah, Jozebeth, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Alright, so once they come back into this place, once you, you can almost see that the, the things are back to normal, maybe that's the case. And so, one of the things they want to do is reestablish the way of worship. It reads to me in many ways that when they were exiled, they were spread apart, their worship had sort of disappeared. What their traditions had been followed had disappeared as well. And so here they are in the, the, the city that was given to them. They're in this morning light, I think Boo read right there. New walls are being, have been built. You know, everything is back to normal as it were. Here, come, here is Ezra. They call on him. He's standing on a pulpit of wood. That's kind of our title for tonight as well. And amid the silence here, he lifts up the scroll. What is the scroll here that he lifts up? What, what's he going to read to them? <clears throat> he'd read, he'd been read uh, the books of the law. Absolutely. I don't know how which one. He was... The, the... He had had to search for them. Um, he had had to search for them. Search for what? Well, yeah, but he's going to read, yeah, because they, that's where they had been gone. So he's going to read this to these people. And it's important to note, when he starts to read, the crowd sort of comes to their feet. We'll talk about that here in a little bit as, as well. It's entirely possible that a lot of the people here had never heard this read. This is a first-time thing. This is a religious document. This is an important reading, but a lot of these people have probably never heard that. I'm assuming that. I don't know that, but I'm making that guess. But Ezra's voice sort of starts up, and the whole assembly just falls on their face, the Bible says there, in adoration. And so what we're going to look at tonight are what I am titling here, Elements of Worship. And these are an Old Testament story, but with New Testament practicality. Okay? So what they go through in this first time back together is something that we need to go through every time we come together. Let's start with the first thing. The first element of acceptable worship. We'll call this unity of God's people. So let's go into... Chapter 8 and verse 1, here for just a second. As Boo read there a moment ago, Now all the people gathered together as one man in an open square that was in front of the water gate. Now, I don't know if any Nixon fans in here getting nervous about Watergate coming up, but not, not the same Watergate right here. Right? But the idea of a Watergate, how you would enter into a city through a, you know, bring a boat into a city. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded of Israel. Now, the people are uniting here. I feel like I've asked this question before. What's it mean to unite? To come together. That's an easy one, right? It means to come together. And you say, well, this is an old story from way back when. Well, there's stories of uniting in the Old and the New Testament. If you go to the 133rd Psalm, look at verse 1. It says, Behold, 
how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in, anybody want to guess what the last word is? Unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Is there a more accurate statement that could be found in the Bible than that? Isn't it better when people are united with each other? I like the word that, how good, but more, how good and how what? What's that P word there? How pleasant. Do you know people that are pleasant? Nobody has ever disliked a pleasant person. It's impossible, right? Well, that's Old Testament. We're, we're, you know, that, that, that was, those people were in times of strife and peril. That, you know, what about the New Testament? Well, Paul speaks about this as well. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can read verses 10 through 17, but more specifically, just look at verse 10. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul says in verse 10, now I plead with you. What does the word plead mean? What does it mean to plead? I think you're begging. You're just like, I am begging of you in this situation to please Brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, so that there be no what? Division. So there be no divisions among you. Well, they talked about the Old Testament, said it'd be, you know, it'd be pleasant, it would be good, but it doesn't look like the people necessarily followed along with that, because a thousand years later, whenever it is when Paul's talking, same problem. Now, well, all right, Daniel, but that's a, that's a, that's a New Testament request. Is that a modern day Request. How important is for a modern day church to have unity, lack division, and have pleasantness? I don't think that you can, can you exist without it? Not effectively, right? And so this teaching that Nehemiah, or excuse me, that Ezra, I, I will mess this up a million times. This is the book of Nehemiah, this is Ezra talking. This thing, it's funny, this is what Ezra starts with. The importance of people being united. Why was it important for the children of Israel to understand unity? Well, during this situation here, they're going to try to do a, a big work. Yes. If people aren't working together, it's yes. going to fall apart. Very, very Why else do they need to, need to know this? How have the children of Israel done with unity so far? They've struggled, right? They've had some struggles throughout our studies so far. A lack of unity. Now, let's be real clear about unity before we go on to the next thing. Unity doesn't mean that we all have to like the same thing. If I were to tell you right now that I am a Cincinnati Reds fan, if Brent was here, he would be in disagreement with me. Brent would say he's an Atlanta Braves fan. So we lack unity and therefore we can't worship together, Correct? If I were to tell you who I voted for in an election, it may not be the same as who you voted for. Does that mean we lack unity? Now, if I were to stand up in the church and say anybody who's an Atlanta Braves fan, probably go to hell. Am I making a mistake with what I'm saying right there? 
I'm focusing on things that don't matter. We're talking unity. We're talking about scriptural things. Now, if there's things that Brent and I, or you and I disagree on scripturally, we need to figure that answer out. That's the purpose of the church, is to sort that out. If we disagree on what color of car Leland should have got a couple weeks ago, that's just, that's just personal preference. That's not anything more than opinion. But we sometimes lack unity over those things that don't matter. Number two. Time is not important. I say that as I look at the clock right here. In verse 3, Nehemiah opens up, I guess as we read right here in verse 3, it says, In the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they read from morning to midday. What do you think the time, what would you say morning to midday? How long would you say that would be? Eight o'clock to three o'clock. That sounds awful lot like school hours. Eight o'clock. He read from eight o'clock to three o'clock. If you don't like that, we can maybe say eight o'clock to two o'clock. This is a lengthy period of time. And it would have been hot. And it would have been hot. Now, I remember the first time these people maybe had heard this. But he, they read for this length of time. Now, what time does church start on Sunday. Worship service on Sunday. 10.30. What time's it in? I've never seen that on the bulletin, on the marquee, on the website. I've never seen that. But y'all sure, y'all answered the end time quicker than the start time. What time does church not in? 11.40. You better be wrapped up already. Alright? <laughs> See, think about this for just a second. We all know what time it starts, but we get pretty wrapped up on what time it ends, right? He didn't need to make that last point. Five points was plenty. He didn't need a six one. This thing's lasting forever. Stomach's growling. Already tired. Six one's not a whole lot like the third one. Maybe he already said that a minute ago. And his pie's pretty ugly too. He didn't more that. I'm only joking. But do people in the church watch the clock? Yeah. So let's think about this. If you, this is, I'm really glad Mary's not in here because Mary would answer this question opposite of the way it's supposed to be. If you go to a ball game and it goes into overtime, that's the most exciting thing. Five more minutes. Wonder who will win. Mary said in baseball, she buys a ticket for nine innings. Anything extra, she has no interest in being there. Mary is a terrible student for the class. But if we go to a ball game and it goes into overtime, we're going to tell everybody about it. Man, shot, man, court, sit it in the overtime. What if church goes into overtime? We're mad, aren't we? Long winded, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Long Every song we sung had five verses in it. Ben, I got to say, though, I don't know that I've ever heard that here or experienced it here. Yeah, sometimes people just don't talk out loud. No, you're right, but, but we have to think about that as a church. Sometimes we get our time to say, I am, what I'm saying in that sense is I'm sort of, I'm allocating this much time for church, but I'm not prepared to allocate it anymore. I don't know what the mid, morning to midday, eight to three, I don't know what the time was right there, but it doesn't seem like they talked for a couple of minutes and then sat back down. 
if we focus on the clock rather than on the presentation, then we're making a mistake. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, it says, where your treasure is, what's opposite? What is that after that? There your heart will be also. If our treasure is in the church, a couple extra minutes in the sermon shouldn't bother us, right? But sometimes our treasure is in Lee's Fane's recipe. And that's where my heart is at 11.32. Right? It does happen. Thirdly, preparation for worship. Anybody remember what, anybody know what this is? Who read it in the It's the pulpit. Some versions it says platform. The picture sort of turned. I think of this. Oh, let me go back. I think of this as a pulpit and that more of a platform, but that was, a, that, was a, that was the best picture I could find that didn't have anything on it. In reality, there's like a pulpit on top of a platform. So anyway, in chapter 8 and verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for what? They had built something to prepare for this presentation. Now, let's talk about preparation for worship in just a second. Fortunately, we don't have to build one of these things every time we come together. What if we had to build this for every service? I, mean, they, they, I can't do it. We might have a couple of folks that'd be able to handle that, but that'd be kind of, you know, we, I can't have to do that every time. I don't know how old this one is. There's a pulpit at Derrick County High School that says from the class of 1965. We still use it. It's a good, sturdy thing to make presentations from. So we don't necessarily have to build things in preparation, but how do we prepare for worship? We need to clear our minds of all of the thoughts. Think so. Absolutely. How else? How else do we prepare? We should want to be there. I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know so. I don't know. Yeah. They just feel like we have to go. You, you feel like you have to go. You're wasting time. Sure. You should want to go. I agree. We should look forward to it. You should make every effort to be on there in time. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, <coughs> You know, back in this time period, the reading of these scriptures was not a spur-of-the-moment activity. Now, Bible reading for us can be a spur-of-the-moment activity because all of us have a Bible at home. And we can just pull that off the shelf or off the table or whatever and just read something real quick. The preacher always quotes this verse. I don't mention this man got that. We can do that at any time. You got it in your phone. Maybe pull it up on the computer. You can look at it a number of different ways. Why was Bible reading and scripture reading back then not a spur of the moment thing? They didn't have it. You had to go to these places. You had to go to the temple for a synagogue for it to be read. Or maybe in this case, they built a pulpit or a podium uh, for them to be able to uh, uh, for them to be able to read it from. So the purpose here, the purpose that they had assembled for was known to all of them. They were here to listen to the word read to them, correct? I'm so very few could have read. 
Yes, you could, most of the people couldn't have even read in the first place in order to be able to have pulled a scroll off the shelf, as it were, to be able to read it. And so these people had gathered for that purpose. What's our purpose when we come together on Sunday mornings and nights and Wednesday nights? It is. So are we prepared for it? We should be. We need to prepare before we come together. This morning, I had my lesson about 10% done at 8 o'clock this morning. And so I called mom and dad and I said, can I bring Will over to you all for a little bit? I've got to get this stuff done. Because I just wasn't as prepared as soon as I should have been. Well, I spent some time this morning and also this afternoon then working on it. I feel like I'm a little better prepared. If we had had class this morning at 8, we wouldn't have to watch the clock. We'd have been done about five minutes after I started because we wouldn't have much to go on right then. But preparation, whether you're the teacher or you're the student, is still important. So we need to be prepared when we come together. I'm talking a lot. Questions. We're three-fifths of the way through here, so... Questions? Some of those names are women. Yes. I looked all of them up and uh, they, several of them are women. I feel like we would all struggle with the spelling test if we had to look at those. Zachariah, though, know that one. That's, that's an easy one, you know. If we all had to do a report on all of them, I would pick this one and y'all could pick all the others because. Uh, Feel like typing them into Google would be hard uh, the way that they are, the way that they're spelled. All right, let's go to the fourth one. Reverence during worship. What's the word reverence mean? It's respect. Standing in awe. Respect, standing in awe. Um, I'm sorry? Um, Honor, absolutely. Right. Verse 5 right there. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. Why was he standing above all the people? He was on the platform. That way they could see him as well. Uh, do we know of any other examples in the Bible where people stood in a place so that people could see him? Zacchaeus, yeah, to be able to see. Hey, this, is, this is nothing new to us. You know, anytime we, if we go anywhere, we want to be able to get a better seat. When I was uh, uh, start of, right before the start of my sophomore year in college, me and a buddy were going to go to a concert in Cincinnati. It's River Bend, River Bend Music Center. And it's right on the Ohio River, but there's a stage that's down in front of the river. And then there are chairback seats, and then behind it, there are grass areas and you said in the grass. Well we didn't have seats in the chair back. We had spots in the grass. And we moved three or four times because where we were we just never really could see the band. They had big screens but they didn't have you couldn't physically see the band as they was performing. <coughs> it would have been great if that stage had been higher up. It'd been really good if we had seats with chair backs on we didn't have that kind of money. So that pulpit that, that, that Ezra is going to stand on so people would be able to see him. But as we read uh, right here, uh, it says, and they gave the sense, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, reading the wrong thing. For he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, what did the people do? The people stood up. Now, we don't do that much 
here. But would there be anything wrong with whenever we had the scripture reading if everybody stood up while the reading took place? That's not really a cultural thing for us, right? We'll stand for a prayer more than we would for a reading. Most of us wouldn't stand while the preacher was preaching. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's just, you know, they get kind of tired. Some of us probably couldn't stand that long as well. The Old Testament doesn't really show anywhere that I've seen that standing to read the law was required. There's nothing, you're not going to find this. You have to stand to do this. But sometimes there's a time and place for things. And this seemed like kind of the time and place. And the people reacted with reverence as well. Jewish rabbis, I found this while I was looking, said that this has been a historical custom since the time of Moses. There's nothing scriptural about it, but it's a historical custom. (laughs) Do we have any historical customs in church today? (laughs) About all of it, right? It's about all historical. And we've talked about this before, but if we rearrange things, what happens? People struggle with it, right? Even if we don't fuss, I understand. We don't, we don't have to do it in this order, but if we do it, like, well, that's, 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 that's kind of different. If we took communion at the very start of service, that would be weird, right? Would it be scriptural? Would there be nothing wrong? What if we had church service from, 11, from 1030 to 1145? No. What if we had service at 10? And then we came back at 2 o'clock and took communion? Nothing wrong with it. Now, if you live in Harrisburg, that's probably not the best plan, right? If you live in Stanford, that's probably not the best plan. So a lot of things that we do are customary, and we've done them in this method because it's a historical precedent. We've talked about this before. The problem is when we make those things binding, you want to avoid that. But there's reverence here in what was at place. These people stood to listen. Now, the only thing that I would say about our Methods can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40. Paul says, let, us all, let all things be done decently and in order. Now, this was after a discussion about speaking in tongues. We said there may not be people that can understand it. People just go crazy. That's not what we need. He says, let all things be done in decency and in order. What if our church service stops being decent and in order? And order doesn't mean you do this first and say, that's not what that means. But order is order in court, like you might hear uh, in a courtroom or something like that. That's what we're talking about when we think about reverence. And standing is a, is, a, <coughs> is a reverential thing to do. You know, if it's the president or sure. the president this field, I don't care who the president is, mm-hmm. I'm standing up, okay? It's respectful. But when the judge walks in the courtroom, we stand up, you know. Yeah. And, and, I don't think anybody can put you in jail if you don't stand up, but it's just the, it's just the nice sure. thing. And the, the Bible is the most important thing. These people understood. These scrolls have been lost or mm-hmm. been misplaced or, for all these years. And this is the Word of God. This is time to listen. This is time to pay attention. So I know it's only a TV show, but on Netflix, there's a show called The Crown, which is about Queen Elizabeth's reign uh, <clears throat> as Queen of England. And every time she comes in the room, they just stop and like bow to her. And I, just, I, I watched like three and a half of the four seasons. And I just said, man, I'd be so tired of doing that. I'm like, man, you know, didn't we become a little tighter friends so I don't have to do this? Even her kids bow to her on the show. But there's a, that, that sort of, they, there's, when one of the people gets married, they teach the girl like, you're supposed to bow. 
You know, we taught that. Well, that, that's a little much in that system, but it's reverence that's maybe being shown right there. It's also custom. Yeah. You can't do that. Probably could. Last one, plain preaching. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the last verse that we read just a moment ago, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. When this reading was taking place, it says here they made the law comprehensible to the hearers. Let's think about that for a second. What does it mean to comprehend something? To understand it. Now, there's a difference in hearing and comprehending, right? We all have examples in our life where we've heard every word but didn't understand any of it. I hope that you don't leave here tonight having heard a lot and not comprehending anything. But sometimes that's like, I don't have a clue what he talked about. You've probably heard preachers that have done that before. That can be troublesome. Uh, as it were. But it kind of looks like here from what we read and from things that I sort of studied on as well, that Ezra has read a section of the law. But remember, these are people that maybe knew it a little bit, but hadn't heard it, hadn't been around it, weren't that familiar with it. And so it seems like that after he does that, the Levites then go in to explain what this is. Remember, this is people that were unfamiliar with it. Maybe familiar, unfamiliar is not the right word, but were unlearned as it were. Well, if he just goes up there and reads eight verses or a hundred verses or a million verses and verses didn't exist at the time, but you know what I'm saying. If he just reads all of this, the people won't understand. You know, we see that in the New Testament as well. Acts 2. Mm-hmm. What do they say, Lou? So people could understand what was taking place. Well, that's what they needed that here as well. These people needed a little bit of help. And it says here, what we've got here, the Levites then expounded. Why were the Levites? They were the priests. That was, they were the ones that knew. They were the ones that knew. So Bible preaching involves explanation. You can't preach a lesson... Let me rephrase. You can't tell a lesson. You need to explain a lesson. Because if you've spent an hour, or maybe a few more minutes, if you were prepared when you came, and you spent the time worshiping and not paying attention to the clock, and you've been reverent in all things while it happened, but the preaching did not explain anything to you, you didn't get anything from it. You've got to be able to take what you've learned and put it to use when you leave. If you walk out the door and I said, what are you talking about tonight? He said, I don't know. You've been unsuccessful. And that happens sometimes. And sometimes that's your fault, but sometimes that's my fault. And they must have really expanded the word really well because it says the people started to mourn and cry. Yes. Yep. So the people was really, they were really glad to get the word. I think they were so happy they cried. Absolutely. We see that in Acts chapter two when uh, when the people stopped Peter, didn't they? They said they told they just they pretty much shouted Peter down and said, "Ask him what." 
what should we do to be saved? And they were captivated by that. They, they were ready to hear. They said, you know, it's almost like saying, you're preaching, you've preached enough, tell us what we need to do right now. Last couple of verses, you may want to turn uh, in, back into your Bible uh, to read this, but Ezra, or excuse me, got it wrong, one last time. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Nine through twelve. Mom, do you care to read that one? Nine through twelve. So they leave with a task, as it were, to, to, to go out. You've heard the law. Uh, the people are weeping. It says, Don't, it, it, this day is holy. Do not mourn nor weep. Uh, it said, for all the people had wept when they heard the words. And he said, go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Probably the things they never, the doctor probably wouldn't tell you uh, today. But he's saying, go out there and you go out and enjoy you know, life. These people needed to enjoy. They've been in exile for a long period of time and they're back together and the word of God is there with them along the way. And so verse 12, they went and ate, they went to eat and drink, send portions and rejoice greatly because the last thing in verse 12, they understood the words that were declared to them. They started this lesson Many of them maybe having never heard this or not understanding anything that was going to be presented to them. And they went away happy and cheerful because they had been taught well. How many of you have ever left church happy and cheerful? That should be the goal. And so if we talk about worship and these five different things that we looked at here just a moment ago then this notion of how we leave, we should be excited to go out and then hopefully come back the next time. So again, we talked about unity, not concerning ourselves with time, preparing ourselves, showing reverence, and then understanding, preaching, teaching what was being presented. Jim, I think through the years, the church has failed in that regard. You can be reverent and still be happy. Right. People that were scared to smile, scared to say a kind word because it would seem like I'm not being reverent to God. God wants us to be happy. We are right. His children. And I think sometimes we fail in that. There's certainly a, a, you know, you need to be serious, you need to be reverent, but you sure need to be happy because Jesus died for us. Right. Agree. Any other thoughts? My clock says it's 701. But I'm not going to apologize.